0: I would like to call your attention this morning to the words of the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians. will be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And I've titled my sermon this morning, Gospel Grace, Life from the Grave. And I'm so thankful that in this church we have been gifted uh, with such a, a faithful shepherd who time and time again has explained to us these beautiful salvific truths that are found within these seven verses. But I chose this passage because Paul wrote these truths to believers with the purpose of explaining the immeasurable, tremendous blessings that are ours in Christ in what we have received from God through salvation. And I also chose this passage because if there is one who sits in this room this morning who at this moment is condemned before God because of the hardness of your heart, I would plead with you that you would listen to what God has to say in these verses because it is by His grace that you are here this morning and you are not promised another second and whether or not you repent and place your faith and trust in Christ will determine whether you spend An eternity in hell or an eternity in the glorious presence of God. So beginning in Ephesians 2 verse 1, the word of God reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The overarching theme of Ephesians is that believers would come to really comprehend the immeasurable riches and blessings that are in Christ And not only to know them, but also to cultivate in our hearts a desire to walk in a manner worthy of them. So let me ask a question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because it it seems like there's a lot of confusion in this world as to what it really means to be saved. You know, I'm going to be honest, since moving here to Tennessee, I've come to realize that apparently everybody's a Christian. I hear things like, oh, I went up to the altar when I was in youth camp and I, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and then one of the men at the front came and, and brought a Bible to me and he wrote my name and he wrote the date in the back of the book. So whenever I, I doubt my salvation, I just look at the book and I see my name and the date and that's the reason I'm a Christian. Or oh, I was baptized when I was five. That's why I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, A Christian? You should see my parents' faith. I was born a Christian. However, Jesus would say otherwise. He said in John 3.3 3, to Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in our text this morning, Paul lays out these seven verses by examining the believer's past, their present, and the future. And the message that Paul had for the church in Ephesus and the message that he has for you this morning is that if you are a Christian, God has made you alive by his grace alone. And if you are not a Christian, these first three verses do not explain your past, but they explain your present. So there are three main headings that I want to give you this morning. The first one would be from verses 1 to 3. Man's state in sin verses four to six will be looking at the believers present state and verse seven will be looking at the chief end to the believers salvation Paul in this text discloses to believers The contrast between our previous state of being dead in sin and our present state of being alive in Christ we who have defiled and rebelled against the thrice holy God have been reconciled to this great God by grace alone. We, he, he lays out in front of us this, this astounding and this incredible act of God where believers who were once under God's intense anger and wrath now experience his, his benevolent and his incomparable love from, from death death to life, from a life controlled by the various forces of evil to a life that is now sustained by God's grace. From a dead, hopeless rebel, living in darkness and condemned to hell to a regenerated saint. From a rotting corpse to a a joint heir with the king of kings, seated with him in the heavenly places and clothed in the robes of his righteousness. Righteousness. And Paul wants his readers to understand that by, God, by God's grace, you have a new identity in Christ. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is given to every believer at the moment that you are birthed into the kingdom. Now this, this incredible act of God's grace can, uh, can be understood and treasured only when we see the reality of our depravity and of our previous state of being condemned and under God's wrath the, the grace of God shines forth more brilliantly when we see the backdrop of our backdrop of our of our wickedness and the deadness of our hearts and the righteous judgment of God that we deserve because of that evil we must measure the depth of sin out of which we have been raised and, and in order for in order to see how great and mighty God's power is in redemption, we, we must start low, as low as you can possibly go. And as low as you can go would be by looking at man's state in sin. Without truly understanding Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you'll never really understand verses 4 to 7. I mean, you cannot, you can never understand the, the cross of Christ. And how extraordinary his atoning work was until you understand the doctrine of sin. I mean, how could you possibly understand the redeeming work if you do not understand how deep and how dark was the sin that held him to the tree? Not only that, but you can't understand the very world in which we live or, or human history until you understand the doctrine of sin. So we're going to begin with man's state and sin, uh, starting in, in verse 1. Paul says, and you. He's speaking about those saints, as we see in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about the elect, those whom God has set his love on in eternity past. Those, according to Ephesians 1.4, were chosen before the foundations of the world and those in the following verse who were predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And those according to seven who were redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise according to one thirteen. Paul in, the, in this first verse is reminding every person who has been a recipient of God's power and saving grace. What they were before they were birthed into the kingdom. And he does this by by giving the most vivid picture of what our previous state looked like. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is no clear statement of the sinfulness of man. To be dead here is is not referring to a, a physical death, but it's referring to a spiritual death. But to better comprehend what it means to be dead spiritually, let's think for a moment of what it means to be dead physically. Uh, The word dead here comes from the Greek word nekros, meaning lifeless or corpse. Think about it. What what can a lifeless body do? What what can you do with a body that is dead? I mean, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. You You can shake them all you want. You could fill their body with medicine, but once they are dead, they're dead. They have no life within them, and they have no ability to respond Now again, Paul is not talking about physical death, but he's talking about spiritual death. At the moment of conception, physically we become alive, and it's not until the time of our death that we physically die, but spiritual death is altogether different. We we are born dead. And when thinking about death, what, what is it? Well, it's really the exact opposite of life. We see this in John 17, 3. When John says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God is the author and he is the source of life. And when you are, are separated and alienated from God, there's only death. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he defines life this way. This way. He says, life is to know God to be in a relationship to God, to enjoy God, to correspond with God, to be like God, to share the life of God, and to be blessed of God. And death is the exact opposite. To be dead is to not know God. To be dead is to be ignorant of God, to have the mind totally darkened towards God. It is to be under God's wrath to live your life in, in a way that God absolutely abhors and to have no desire within you to love and obey him. And then the verse says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. In, the word in is what is what they call a, a locative of sphere, which indicates the, the sphere or realm that we lived before we were in the sphere of Christ. We, we were not dead because we had committed sin, but because we were in the sphere of sin. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's our nature. Now, now this reality of sin being in our nature stems from, from original sin. So I want to talk about it briefly be, uh, because understanding the, the doctrine of of original sin will answer the question, why are we dead in sin in the first place? Original sin is simply the, the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. It refers to Adam's sin of disobedience and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and its effects upon the rest of the human race. It is often defined as the moral corruption we possess as a consequence of Adam's sin resulting in a sinful disposition manifesting itself in habitually sinful behavior. This concept of Adam as our, as our representative is clearly seen in, in Romans 5. We see in verse 12, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Or verse 15, By the transgression of the one, the many died. Or verse eighteen, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse nineteen, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, so what's God's purpose in all of this? Why does God decide to judge the entire human race based off of original sin? And we see the answer in verse twenty-one. He says, "So that as sin reigned in death." even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In God's providence, he determines that every person born would be represented by the first Adam so that the riches and the glories of his grace we put on full display so that the redeemed are no longer represented by the first Adam but by his son, the last Adam. We we all inherited a, a sinful nature Therefore, every person who comes into this world is dead in sin, and and nothing but a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit can deal with this damning state. We cannot hear or see the truth unless God gives us eyes and ears to hear and to see the truth. In other words, to be dead means that there is no desire within our hearts to respond to the call of the gospel. Our heart, our mind, our will, our affections, passions, and desires are enslaved to sin. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, we have the freedom to do what we want to do, but our want to has been enslaved by sin. The problem is not that we don't have freedom to make choices. The problem is that we are dead to the things of God. We don't want him. The desire for the things of God is not there. End quote. We follow the path that we want to follow, and the path never leads to Christ. And the problem is the heart, as we see in Jeremiah 17 9, says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Jesus said in Mark seven: twenty-one to twenty-three, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts fornications, thefts, murderers, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Man has a great problem. The problem is that in respect to the things of God, we are dead. And it's not like the, the popular analogy that I used to hear Uh, growing up in youth group and it kind of I'm sure you guys are probably aware of it it kind of goes like this a a man uh, is like someone who's been cast into the sea and they're kicking and they're swimming and then they get to the point where they're actually underneath the water and they're drowning in faith they, they reach out their hand above the water and the only way that they can be saved is if God throws a life preserver so God throws the life preserver and it lands right in their hand, but the dead sinner must grab it. And if he grabs it, then he is saved and pulled into the lifeboat and, and he's saved. But, but the problem is that that's not what Scripture reveals to us. The reality is that we've already drowned. Well, we're dead at the bottom of the ocean, the only way that we can be saved is if Yahweh, the sovereign ruler, dives into the water, picks up our corpse off the ocean floor, and resurrects us to new life. Notice how the verse says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses is to, to violate explicit Bible commands. For example, you shall not murder. Therefore, if you murder someone, you you've trespassed against the command. It means to take a false step. It's a stumble away from the truth. It, it means to be tripped up, to step over the line. And sin is to miss the mark, is to fall short of any goal, standard, or purpose. And we also see sin described in 1 John 3, 4 as lawlessness. So Paul's point here is not to describe Uh, Two distinct groups of wrongdoing. Trespasses and sins can really be used interchangeably here. Paul's point, and the reason trespasses and sin is in the plural, is to show the totality of sinfulness that is a result of deadness. And now Paul, he actually elaborates on the sins by giving three compelling, powerful forces that grips every unbeliever that dominates our thinking. These powers are what held us captive and chained to our sin. But we were so engrossed by these powers that they dominated the mind and that is what we found our deepest satisfaction in and that is the world, the devil, and the flesh. So he begins with the world in verse two. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. Walked, it comes from the word uh, peripateo and it refers to, to actions or behaviors. We see this word also in Romans thirteen thirteen, when Paul says, Let us behave properly as in the day. The word is talking about living in us in a certain manner, and he says, We formerly walked, which means that as believers we no longer walk this way. If you look at Ephesians 2.10, this shows the way in which we now walk. He says in, in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has made every believer a new creature, and therefore we now walk in good works by his power and for his glory. This points to Paul's central command in in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we see several more walk commands by Paul, such as walk no longer as the Gentiles, or walk in love, walk as children of light, or walk as wise men. But Paul says in this text that the way in which you formerly walked was according to the course of this world. And the world here refers to the world order, the evil age, the the secular society that hates and opposes God. To, To walk according to the course of this world is to have a view of life without God. You're living for the world And the reality is every unbeliever is under the control of this world and unable to break from its course or its path. They're living in opposition against God, whether that be by pursuing uh, justification by your own righteousness or or living under the influence of of false religions or by pursuing the various ideologies or philosophies of this world, The, the dead man is impressionable. He is easily influenced by the things of this world, and therefore his eyes are fixed on them, and that is where his affection lies. It could be by being influenced uh, by the media, or your favorite sports team, or some sexual site, or anything that provides a script for living day-to-day life apart from God and in opposition to God. And although there are many types, uh, different types of ideas and standards amongst men, there is a consensus that the wide range of things in the world is more important than the truth of God's word. And Paul says, this was you, believer, and this is you, unbeliever. Walk according to the course of this world, away from God and spiritually dead because you are or you were controlled by the mind of the world. And it gets worse, not only did we walk according to the course of the world, but the whole world, according to 1 John 5, 9, lies in the power of the evil one. So the second powerful influence that formerly held every believer and that currently holds every unbeliever in bondage to sin is the devil. Paul says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Paul doesn't just state the fact that every unbeliever is held in bondage to sin by the devil. He even describes this being. He says that he is the prince of the power of the air. Prince means ruler or leader, and the power of the air is a metaphor speaking of the realm of spirits. Satan is is ruling over the power of the demons. He rules over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He is, according to Matthew 12, 24, the ruler of the demons. And not only that, but he's also, according to John twelve thirty one, the ruler of this world. And, and by nature, we were all under the dominion of this evil ruler, and there, and there was no escape. And the truth is, the unbeliever does not want to escape. They love what he loves. They love this world. They love the feeling that this world gives them. However, the believer, with a new nature, hates this evil creature. The believer hates the deceptive lies that he dishes out to the world. The Christian hates the things of this world. And now the Christian is in this battle. They're in war against Satan and his minions. And just to note the Christian life, and I'm sure a lot of you guys know this, is no walk in the park. I mean, it is, it is a war. And that's why we must put on the full armor of God daily. For Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How and where do we we win the battle? The the battle is won within the mind. It's won by meditating upon God's infallible word, taking every thought captive. It's won in prayer with all distractions aside on your knees before your gracious God, begging him for more discernment, asking him for more boldness in battle, Crying out that he would grant you more love towards Christ. We we all need his strength in this battle. Ask him to, to soften your heart. Say, God, help me desire what you desire. Give me passion for Christ. Give me a greater desire for him. Give me a clearer understanding of his person and his work. Help me not just know the facts within my mind, but to know them in my heart. Change me by your word. And then moving on to verse 2, Paul describes Satan more by saying of the spirit. And the spirit here refers to the reality of Satan as a spiritual, immaterial being. He does not possess flesh and bone. And this evil being, uh, this slanderer, this adversary, this father of lies who hates God is now working in the sons of disobedience. Working is in the present tense, but, but it's also in the active voice, which indicates a continuous action. It means that, that Satan and his demons are always at work, that they are powerfully, continuously working in the sons of disobedience. And, and the word in here, he is now working in the sons of disobedience. It emphasizes this, this intimate relationship. John MacArthur, he says this, the prince of disobedience works in willing followers, those who have no regard for the word and will of God, called sons of disobedience. When when Paul says disobedience, this is a Hebrew way of saying that you are marked by or characterized by disobedience. And the reality is we, we were all prisoners of darkness Like in Ephesians 5, 6 to 8, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon, here we see again, the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. Uh, Another way of of describing uh, the nature of the sons of disobedience, Paul says you were formerly darkness which again is speaking about the mind being darkened towards spiritual things. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 said, in whose case the God of this world, which is the prince of the power of the air, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He says, blinded. There, there is an inability to see light. There, there's only darkness. And what are the unbelieving blind to? He says, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We were in the dark, blinded. that The light of the glory of the gospel of Christ could not shine through because we were dead. We were gripped by the powerful force of this world being devoured and tempted and corrupted by the evil one and characterized by disobedience. And the third powerful influence that holds every unbeliever captive to their, to their sin is the flesh. Paul, still speaking about the sons of disobedience, says, among whom we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Paul changes from using you in verses 1 and 2 to now saying we uh, in, verses, in verse 3. He says in 2 1, you Gentiles were dead. And in 2 3, he says, we Jews were also in this horrendous state, united in deadness and, and sons of disobedience. No one is off the hook here. Paul, Paul is also including himself prior to conversion and, and every Jew or Gentile prior to conversion. But it's also true that this would include every unbeliever who is currently outside the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, an all-inclusive statement. We all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. The, the way in which every believer conducted their lives was in the lust of the flesh. And lust here, it comes from the word, it's not referring to a, a sexual lust, but it's referring to a, a deep or strong inclination. It's talking about a, a, a deep passion, And you'll notice that later in the verse it says, indulging the desires of the flesh. And the word desires is a a strong willfulness. It's referring to a person's desired purpose or outcome. It's so strong that it it drives the the unbeliever to action. Desire is when you get to the point where you say, "I, I have to have this. Now, desire in and of itself is is not always bad, but this type of desire is is an arrogant demand that will not take no for an answer. And the flesh here represents the aspect of of a person's life dominated by sin, empowered by self, and doing whatever makes them feel good. Galatians 6.8 says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. To live in the lust of the flesh is to, is to sow to the flesh. It is to walk by the flesh. It is to be characterized by the flesh so that you are now producing the deeds of the flesh. We see the deeds of the flesh explained in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now, now people lust after and they desire a lot of different things. It could be a desire for, for food, a desire for sleep, pleasure, happiness. It could be things that aren't inherently bad. These things can be right and good. But this is when these things take control of you. They become your all-encompassing focus. It's what drives you. The, The dead man is dominated by these desires. He can't get away from it. Anything that promotes himself anything that makes him feel good, anything that is of the world that is fleshly, that is sinful, he can't get enough. He lusts after it. He desires it. So there's a similarity between the lust of the flesh and the desires of the flesh. And the purpose of having them both is to show that man is totally committed to promoting himself. He is on a path, and it is a a self-centered path, And then he says the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He takes it even a step further. The the, the mind is the whole process of thinking. It is defined here as those sinful thoughts and desires which produce willing choices that disregard the will of God. The mind is, is the entry point. Everything begins in the mind. The sinfulness of man flows out of his depraved mind. And Paul says, this is where we were. The dead man is is passionately, resolutely, actively thinking, desiring, and living out their lives in a way that defiles the living God. Romans 8, 7, 8 says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what is, the, what is the result of all this? Paul says at the end of verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In order for us to sing with joy of God's amazing grace, to, to really cherish our salvation in Christ, we must see what we have been saved from. This topic is vitally important because every person Born is not only born dead, but they're they're born with God's wrath abiding on them. See, Paul did not just explain this, but he also explains how God views man in this state. The dead man is an object of God's eternal wrath. And and the bad news, it it must be preached before we can preach the good news. Uh, This is why you can't just go up to, to an unbeliever and just say, You know, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, when you think about what is that really going to do, I mean, they'll probably say, yeah, I know. I know he loves me. He should love me. Have you seen, you know, how many good deeds I do? I'm a good person. No. The reality is the unbeliever The unbeliever is in rebellion against an infinitely holy, righteous God, and this holy God hates sin. One lie is enough crime for eternal punishment, for in eternity suffering under the wrath of God. I mean, how is that possible? The reality that one lie is enough crime for eternal punishment. I mean, that really seems to shock people. Like, really, one lie, eternity, suffering under the wrath of God, that the crime doesn't seem to fit the punishment. And the problem is that people do not know the God of Scripture. It is because of who you are sinning against. God is infinitely valuable. He's infinitely beautiful. That There's no one like him. He's glorious. He's transcendent. He's perfectly pure, and he upholds justice perfectly. He is the one that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, who is seated on the throne, lofty and exalted above all. The seraphim, these beautiful creatures, are, are, are beholding this glorious God, and with two wings they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet. I mean, they can't even look upon this great God. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The creator of this universe is perfect and holy and transcendent and he's pure. Therefore, his righteous response to sin is his wrath. His wrath is an expression of his hatred of sin. It it declares his holiness. He cannot wink at sin. We see in Psalm 5, 5 to 6, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. To be a child of means that that particular thing that you are a child of thoroughly defines you. The the future of an unbeliever is in eternity, separated from God's goodness, love, and grace, and in eternity experiencing this, this heated up, fierce Fury of God, this wrath is getting ready to be unleashed on the unbeliever. Every person who's outside of Christ, they have a, they have a few more days, a few more weeks, maybe a few more years, until God's intense wrath and fury will be poured out on them forever in hell. Hell is described throughout Scripture as an eternal fire, according to Matthew twenty five forty one. An unquenchable fire, a place of torment and fire, everlasting destruction, a place where the smoke of torment rises forever and ever, Revelation 14, 10 to 11. This word wrath in the original comes, uh, the word is orge, which comes from the verb orago, which means to teem or to swell, which implies that this is not a sudden outburst, The the wrath of God is not like man's wrath. When, When man gets angry, we can lose control of ourselves. But God's wrath is fixed. It's controlled. It's a settled indignation against everything that is unholy. It's like a balloon that's just getting filled up with air. It's just getting bigger and bigger, and eventually it pops. And so, too, the wrath of God is just being stored. Year by year, there's just... There's wickedness on top of wickedness. And eventually in God's sovereign freedom, the, the offer of the gospel is, will be no longer and his wrath will be poured out on every unrepentant heart. But we see in John three thirty six, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Th- this wrath is abiding on the unbeliever. It's abiding on the one who has no desire to be obedient to Christ. It is abiding on the spiritually dead man. Now, Paul is primarily speaking to believers here, showing them what they were. But but it's also true that as an an unbeliever, this is your present state. Uh, This is where you are. You're living your life in, in rebellion against God, and God's wrath abides on you. I mean, you know what is clear here? Man outside of Christ is miserable. They're miserable. Some might argue that men are quite content without Christ. But would that really make a difference? I mean, they, they may be enjoying pleasures now, but they, they're dead in sin and they do not know it. They're, they're captivated, in love with, and chained to the world, they, they feed off their flesh. They indulge the desires of the flesh. They, they are captivated by things that are temporary. They, they love evil and they hate what is good. And they are condemned to hell and God's wrath abides on them. I mean, they have no hope whatsoever. I mean, that right there is, that that's a miserable life. I mean, you want happiness? It's shocking, but the world We'll try and sell it to you, right? They say, buy the perfect house, have good relationships, get the right job, buy the perfect car. They, they sell you garbage, and they stick the happiness sticker on it. You know, Jesus, for the believer, he never promised a life full of, of sunshine and rainbows we, we, we are going to be ridiculed. We are going to be laughed at. We're going to be persecuted. But if you want your soul satisfied and real joy, only Christ can give that to you. Only Christ. And if you want an explanation to this crazy world in which we live in, I mean, babies being murdered by the millions, Men acting like women and women acting like men. There's mass shootings, these heinous attacks that are happening across the world as we speak. Hundreds of hundreds of people committing suicide every day. Husbands cheating on their wives and wives cheating on their husbands. Millions addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, living their lives for the next party. Good is now considered evil, and evil is now considered good. If you want an explanation to all this insanity, the answer is because man is radically depraved. And Paul is saying here, believers in Ephesus across the world and in Calvary Bible Church, this was your state. This is who you were. Yes, God has loved you with an everlasting love, but until you were converted... You were dead in sin, loving your sin, chained to your sin, and under the wrath of God. But then he says, this is what happened. This is the reason that you are a Christian. This is the believer's present state. Verse 4 says, but God. There was not a more hopeless, depressing, and damning state than where we were, but Paul says, but God. God. I mean, I do not know a clearer way to say that salvation is by grace alone, that man has done absolutely nothing to initiate their salvation, that it is God alone who changes a spiritually dead heart in which the sinful nature is changed, and sinners can now respond to God in faith. I mean, you were dead, but God that this is a, a monergistic regeneration, which means that there is only one active agent, God and God alone. God always is the initiator. And Paul is saying, This is where you were, beloved, but God. And the word but is a, is a conjunction, which means that there's also a contrast here. That this is a, a transition point from. From the hopelessness and the darkness of man in sin to the glorious work and the grace of God and love of him in the gospel. I mean, he just stated in detail your state of ruin and depravity, and how did you escape it? Only one way. What does it mean to be a Christian? Are are you a Christian because you're better than others? Because you are more intelligent? Because you were born with power by which you can turn yourself to Christ? Was it that God gives grace, but if it wasn't for your choice, if you did not turn the point, you would still be lost? Because if that's the reason, then we have a lot of reasons to boast. But Paul just finished explaining the state of every person who is outside of Christ. They are a spiritual cadaver And in verse 4, this is what separates an unbeliever from a believer. This is the reason that you are a Christian, but God. God alone can save. God alone can transfer you from the state of utter depravity to spiritual life. Paul leaves no room here for man's decision to start the engine, for man to initiate. God always initiates. The gospel is about God and his intervention, and his willingness to save sinners by his power. I mean, what moves God to save? Why does God forgive rebellious sinners? Why does he change our very disposition in regeneration? Our text this morning says, but God being rich in mercy. The word rich here means to be abundantly wealthy. It means to be without measure or unlimited. And the word mercy means to have pity and compassion on those who are in need. God tenderly expresses empathy towards his enemies, towards those who are under his wrath, who are living in rebellion against him. And it says his great love, I mean his exceedingly vast love, Paul puts this, these words rich and great before these attributes to show that how marvelous they truly are. It's a rich mercy. It's a great love. This is the love that Paul prays that believers would come to comprehend in chapter three, verses 18 and 19. He says, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. It is because of God's rich mercy and his great love that we have been reconciled to him, that we have been transferred from death to life, from children of wrath to children of God. And then he says, because of his great love with which he loved us. I mean, how, how has God loved us? Well, it began in eternity past when he chose us before the foundations of the world. He loved us when he, when he looked upon our miserable state and saw us for who we really are, rebels. I mean, he saw every lustful, prideful, immoral, selfish thought. He saw your idolatry, he saw your covetousness, he saw your, your, cre- your greed, your cursing, your blaspheming. He saw your drunkenness, your fornication, your fleshliness, your unholiness, and he imputed it to Christ on the cross and crushed him in your place as your substitute. And he loved us when he changed our spiritually dead hearts into hearts that now love Christ and want to live for his glory. I mean, this love of God is so great. I mean, it's so great that we should wake up every morning and just just be in awe of who he is and for what he's done for us with this great love with which he has loved us. And now Paul moves on to verse five. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, which it just points us back to verse one. He says, even when we were dead, which is there to intensify how great God's mercy is. Paul wants his readers to see it. We were all dead, but God made us alive. I mean, God looked upon our helpless state, and in his irresistible grace, he caused us to see the horrors of our sin in light of his holiness. He gave us eyes to see that this world is wicked and that those who are of the world are under divine wrath and in God's sovereign freedom. He brought us to spiritual life. He regenerated us. Regeneration can be defined as, and I quote, regeneration involves the triune God's instantaneous impartation of eternal spiritual life to people who were formerly spiritually dead but have embraced Christ by faith because of God's grace. This act of efficacious grace is effected entirely without human aid by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. This creation of new life results in believers being new creatures with new nature, new abilities, new desires, new relationships, and new responsibilities forever. To be a Christian means that you are spiritually alive. To be regenerated is a spiritual birth is to have a new nature, is to be a new creature, is to have a new identity with a new purpose, a new disposition. It's a spiritual cleansing. It's a spiritual resurrection, as we see in John 6:63. 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. And then Paul gives us this, this parenthetical outburst, meaning that he interrupts his own thought to say, by grace you have been saved. It is a reminder and a precursor in which he will further develop in verses eight and nine, which reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it says, by grace you have been saved. Saved, saved from what? I mean, the, the unregenerate person is in the most dangerous place that they could ever be. I mean, they could be in the middle of the ocean with sharks all around them. They could be on the ocean shore looking up at a 100-foot wave, getting ready to consume them, and it would not pale in comparison than being under the wrath of God for all eternity. And one more thing to know on this word saved is that it, it is a perfect passive participle which means that God is the subject. Sinners are being saved by God's gracious act. And because it's in the perfect tense, it is expressing a completed action with continuing results in the present, which has huge implications. It means that not only did God initiate your salvation, but it is that same grace that keeps you safe and secured and forever protected. God's wrath will never be poured out on you because the Son of God endured the wrath of God in your, in your place as your substitute. The blood of Jesus has covered you. Death has no hold on you, and you can have confidence that when you close your eyes in death, because of his grace, we can stand before him clean and clothe in the righteousness of his Son. We are saved by grace alone. And then Paul says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a connection that I want you to see between this verse and the previous chapter. In Ephesians 1, 19 to 20, Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. And in verse 19, he says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, this power that is toward the believer is in accordance with the working of God's great might. He says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And then in verse 20, he says, which he brought about in Christ when he, one, raised him from the dead, and two, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I mean, this power that is toward the believer is explained By Jesus being raised from the dead and Jesus being seated at the right hand of God in the highest position of authority. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says that we were raised up with him. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. That power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raised us from the dead. This is why Paul prays that our hearts would be enlightened to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. What God has done to us spiritually by making us alive when we were dead is comparable to that which he did to our Lord when he raised him physically from the dead. We see Paul speak about believers being raised in Colossians 2.12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. We see a common theme uh, in these verses. We see believers being raised and resurrected in conjunction with the resurrection of Christ, that there's a connection between the two. And we know that the resurrection of Christ is in the past, it's already taken place, therefore, this verse is not speaking about a resurrection that is going to take place in the future, but a resurrection that is taking place once the believer is regenerated and birthed into the kingdom. So Paul, not, not only has the believer been, been made alive and raised with Christ, but then Paul says, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus as Christ was raised and seated in the heavenly places physically, so too have we been raised and seated with Christ spiritually. And the tense for the Greek verb for seated underlines the certainty by describing it as though it has already taken place. And there's something else that Paul is doing in these verses. He's painting this, this beautiful picture that he wants every believer to see, and that is that we are together with Christ in verse five. We're seated with Christ. It is in the heavenly places which is in Christ. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful doctrines as a believer, our unity with Christ. There there is a great intimacy between the believer and the creator of the universe. He is in us, and we are in him. We are hidden in, with Christ, according to Colossians 3.3. 3. It says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, which implies that we are eternally secured. Like in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, we are so united in Christ that scripture calls believers the body and Christ is the head. And since the believer is Christ's body and are in him and are united in him in this intimate way, when he obeys, he's obedient on our behalf. His perfect obedience is credited to us When he dies and suffers the the punishment for our sin and is crushed, he did so in our place. Every aspect of Christ's earthly life, including his resurrection and his ascension, was accomplished so that the believer might now participate in it. Every believer is indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. We are fellow heirs with Christ of eternal life, and we have been lifted up, into the heavenly places and seated with our Savior. That there is an an infinite chasm of where we were and where we are presently at. This is all by the goodness and the grace of God. This is an act of God. God and God alone has raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life and has placed us with his Son forever. And then in verse 7, we see the chief end to the believer's salvation. Verse 7 answers the question as to why God did this. That is why verse 7 begins with, in order that, that this is a conjunction that helps us see that what is stated in verse 7 is the reason and the purpose behind the verbs in verses 5 and 6, made alive, raised, and seated. Why did God do this? I mean, why did he make us alive when we were dead, haters of God and lovers of self? Why didn't he just keep the blindfold on? Why didn't he just make us objects of his wrath and vessels prepared for destruction? Because that is what we deserve, I mean, why did God raise us up with Christ and positionally seat us with him in heaven? The answer is because by doing so in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does God do what he does? For his own glory. We are not talking about a fairy tale figure. We're talking about the one who formed you in your mother's womb. We're talking about the one who creates galaxies, who is self-sufficient, in need of no one, and is infinitely glorious. Everything that God does is for his own glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's greater purpose in salvation is for his own sake, so that he would glor- so that we would glorify him for eternity. That is primary. What is secondary is that we also, in this great act of God's grace, to demonstrate his greatness, we are forever blessed. We get to enjoy this great God forever. And there's also a duration of time here. He says... In the ages to come, which is different from chapter one, verse twenty one, which talks about this age, but it's speaking about a, a continuous age. Because come is in the present is a present participle. The phrase ages to come is speaking about the present all the way to eternity. God is is going to continually, for all eternity, demonstrate. The riches and the glory of his grace that is in Christ Jesus. God in his great wisdom is putting his perfections on display for all to see how great he truly is. I mean, why why is there evil in the world? Why is there sin? Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, knowing that they would eat? Why is there a curse upon the entire human race? Because if there is no evil, if there is no sin, there is no cross, there is no redemption, there is no God displaying the riches and the glory of his grace toward those who do not deserve it. God has done it all. And he's done all of this to showcase the glories and the riches of his grace in providing such a great salvation through his son toward us. In the future, all of heaven will praise God endlessly for his salvation, as we see in Revelation seven, ten to 12, which states, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. It says Salvation to our God. There is no question as to where salvation comes from. God alone. There is none. There is none like our God. There are bountiful reasons to praise and worship our God with reverence, to live live every moment for his glory, to, to walk in obedience to his commands to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And if you are here this morning and and you are a Christian, and I like to think that a lot of us are, and you are bearing the fruit of of a heart that has been regenerated, listen, you have real hope. You will soon be in a world where there will be no evil. The presence of sin will be gone. There will be no need for the sun, for the Lord God will be the light that will illuminate everything. If you are a Christian this morning, remember that this salvation you possess was solely by the grace of God. You were a dead sinner, unresponsive. The mind was darkened. The three compelling forces, powerful forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil gripped you and held you captive to your sin that you loved You were running away from Christ and were falling deeper and deeper in love with your sin. And you had no hope whatsoever. But God resurrected you from the dead. He regenerated your heart, granted you the ability to repent and to place your faith in Christ. He raised you up to heaven and he seated you with Christ Seth, for all eternity, you are in him. God has done it all. He has made you alive. And God has predetermined good works for you to accomplish according to Ephesians 2.10. If you are a Christian, let us live in awe of our glorious Savior. And if you sit in this room this morning or you're watching online, and you are not a Christian. Listen to me. You're still living the same life that you've always lived. You have no desire for Christ, no desire for holiness. I'm pleading with you. God's wrath abides on you because of your rebellion against Him. And if you died today, you'd wake up in hell and you'll never escape. Wake up. Realize your state. Realize that you stand in rebellion against a holy God and be crushed under the weight of your sin. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. There is nothing that you could offer him. He's far too holy. Plead for mercy today. Do not be like the Pharisee from Luke 18 Verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, and a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself God, I thank you. I am not like other people, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day, I pay tithes of all that I get. Do not be like this man. You have nothing to offer our God, nothing. You have broken God's law. You need mercy. You need mercy. Be like the tax collector in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. Beg for mercy today if you know that you are not saved because tomorrow is not promised. The next five minutes is not promised. The one who comes to Christ, he will certainly not cast out. Run to him. He is the only hope that you have. Repent, turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. You have redeemed us by grace alone. You have transferred us from the state of depravity. You've regenerated our hearts, and you've seated us with Christ, your Son, forever in heaven. Father, we stand in awe of who you are. Father, may these truths that are found within these verses stir up our hearts so that we have a greater desire to live for your glory and a greater desire to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for this time. And it is in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.